Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Teixeira was back in federal court today. A judge ruled in favor of the prosecution's request to keep the 21-year-old in federal detention while he waits trial on espionage charges. Teixeira is accused of one of the largest ever leaks of top-secret military documents. Court filings are painting a more detailed picture of Teixeira's alleged activities. Prosecutors submitted three Air Force memorandums to the court, which show that Teixeira was admonished by his superiors at least twice for mishandling classified information. But he was kept in his job. In addition, a detention memo filed last month reveals that local police had denied Teixeira a gun permit because of violent, racist threats he made while in high school. Teixeira also allegedly identified himself as a racist to his friends and often told them that he was preparing for a violent race war, according to reporting from The Washington Post. All this is going on as the Pentagon continues to struggle with a rise in extremism in its ranks. Though the number of confirmed extremists in the armed services may be very small, almost 40 percent of service members polled by the Military Times said they had witnessed white nationalist ideologies in the military. So in 2021, the Pentagon issued an extensive report with recommendations on countering extremism in the military. But recently, the Department of Defense has gone quiet about whether it's made progress on those recommendations. Why? And especially why now, as extremism rises across the United States generally, what's stopping the military, one of America's most diverse institutions, from rooting out the problem in itself? Especially as more service members and veterans are willing to speak up about what they've seen, heard, and done. People like Chris Buckley. I'm a combat veteran from the United States Army. I served my country for 13 years. I left the military and joined a hate group where the majority of the members in the group that I joined were Navy veterans, Marine veterans, and Army veterans. Chris Buckley had joined the Ku Klux Klan. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Chris joined the Army right out of high school, December 2001, just after 9-11, which he says filled him with the need to defend his country. He also wonders if aspects of his family's history contributed to his desire to be in the military. My dad was a very abusive individual. I was sexually molested from 5 till probably 12. From that point moving on, uh, I had this profound hatred for homosexuals because it was a same-sex family member that molested me. I move on, I go into the military, and I lose my comrade in Afghanistan in my arms. It was, it was very traumatic for me, and I found myself having the same hatred I had for homosexuals towards Muslims. We were radicalized. We were, we were radicalized by the U.S. military to go over there and be able to complete a mission and deal with the consequences of it later, the emotional and mental and, and physical consequences later.
So when I come home from Afghanistan in 2009, and I went National Guard, and, and so we got deployed on a state active duty mission to Jackson, Kentucky, and I was uh, forced to drive a military vehicle back from that deployment. On the way back, that back axle snapped, and I wrecked that Humvee once end over end and seven barrel rolls down Interstate 64 right outside Olive Hill, Kentucky. You know, I, I broke my back in that accident. So when reenlistment time came up, they were like, Buckley, we're going to borrow your reenlistment. Man, you're just, you're, you're broke. You're, you're back. You can't do things. So I was angry. You know, I, I given my entire adult life to the uniform services of the United States and to just be told that I wasn't healthy enough and all your friends take off and you don't have any civilian friends. And, and I was bitter. Chris had been in the Army for 13 years. He needed painkillers for his broken back and became addicted to opioids and other powerful drugs. He stopped working and spent what money he had to feed the addiction. So the bills started piling up unpaid. When a soldier's mission is taken away from him and he's left without a mission, he'll create one. A soldier without a mission, he feels worthless. So that's what I did. I, I created my mission. Members of the Ku Klux Klan had stepped in. They helped him get a job, got him back on his feet. Buckley later told a congressional committee, quote, They did not approach me with pitchforks and burning crosses, but with a plate of barbecue ribs, a Bible, and the promise of brotherhood I missed from my days in the Army. You know, that's not something that just people do to do, you know? Like, I mean, hey, that meant something to me. So I kind of started to feel this obligation towards them. I joined uh, within a couple of months of leaving the military. So, like, I got out in March, and I was I was a full-patched member by, like, June. This was June 2013. I joined as, like, a low-ranking, like, initial member. Once I was able to show them what I could do tactically— and, you know, the, the self-defense that I, that I could teach, the hand-to-hand -hand combat things I could teach. And within, like, uh, six months, I was promoted all the way up to a national-level security officer. And the only person over top of me in, in the organization was, was the, the Imperial Wizard. Then the ideology started to seep in and the indoctrination started to seep in. And the addiction, I think, was my biggest downfall. The addiction and the mental health that I was dealing with, the PTSD, the, the trauma, the substance abuse, like, that's where I was vulnerable. Chris was an Imperial Nighthawk of the Georgia White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. He was a black-robed enforcer of the Klan's code. For three years, he trained other Klan members and burned crosses, often in public places. And he says he was a daily meth user at the time. So my son was four. I remember there's some video out there. I have my son, and he's dressed up in this little clan robe. The video is from a 2015 documentary called KKK, The Fight for White Supremacy. Chris and his son are filmed at a clan gathering, standing side by side in their robes. White power! We're fire! There we go. That was your little boy dressed yeah, up? Yeah, yeah. Why did you dress your little boy up in clan clothes? I just, I just want my kid to know that it's okay to be proud of who he is. And uh, if being proud of his heritage makes him a racist, well, I'll teach him to be racist. Are you a white supremacist? Yeah, absolutely. 
and I'm seeing me let him inherit my hate. This innocent little child is just, I'm pumping him full of hate and, and vinegar and, and venom. And I don't know what it was, man, but something just told me it was like, this has to stop. Being in the clan also wrecked his marriage. Chris's wife, Melissa, saw clan life as a threat to their children, but she didn't leave him. And he's still deeply grateful that she stuck by him even when everyone else had walked away. Even more remarkable, Chris says, his wife is the reason he was able to find a way out of extremism. My wife was really, she was on me to get sober and get clean, and eventually I found sobriety. And once I found my sobriety, I started to realize that everything I had been a part of was completely against my character and who I was. And it was just a symptom of a problem. The problem was that I was dealing with undiagnosed mental health conditions. So I decided to leave the group. The process took months. But with the help of his wife and an organization that aids people who want out of racist groups, Chris left the Klan in late 2016. He's now a peer mentor for the nonprofit group Parents for Peace, where he helps de-radicalize young people caught up in extremism. Like I could say that I want people to learn that one mistake doesn't define you. That we do recover, that we are worth the investment. You know, there's still honor inside of us. Extremism is a public health crisis. Like, just because it's a small minority doesn't mean that it's not important. That's the most important thing in the world to me, is making sure that my fellow comrades aren't falling prey to these extremists because our government has done what they've done since the beginning of time and just abandoned them when they didn't need them anymore. Chris Buckley. He lives in Roswell, Georgia, with his children and wife, Melissa. Bishop Garrison joins us now. He's a fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason Law School. In 2021, he led the DOD's working group that issued the report in December of that year on countering extremist activity within the Department of Defense. There's a link to the report at onpointradio.org. Bishop Garrison, welcome to On Point. Uh, Thank you for having me. What strikes you uh, as familiar or emblematic about Chris Buckley's story? Well, uh, so many things. First of all, my heart just absolutely goes out to him. He's uh, dealt with so much trauma in his life to still uh, be the man that he is now trying to make a a positive impact on his uh, fellow veterans, on his community, on society is just absolutely tremendous. the big thing that we hear and that we're we've been aware of for some time is that that transition period that that Chris mentioned after he was unfortunately uh, medically retired from the military. Uh, a lot of these young men and women, a lot of these young people, look for that sense of community. They look for the 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 sense of belonging, the sense of uh, of a supportive environment of structure that they had while they were in the United States military, while they were a service member. Uh, and it really provided them with a lot of stability. So once you create that vacuum of support of a of a structure of this of this 
this positive network for them. They look for it elsewhere. And, and sometimes, often, we can find it uh, positively in the civilian community, but other times uh, they have to look for it elsewhere, and that's how they are targeted by these groups. Mm. So supporting veterans once they leave active duty is definitely part of the picture, but also then making changes within uh, military operations for active duty service members as well. Both things you looked at uh, in that 2021 report. So we'll talk more about it when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Bishop Garrison joins us today. He's a fellow with the National Security Institute at George Mason Law School. And in 2021, he led the Department of Defense's Countering Extremist Activity Working Group, and they issued a report on this in December of 2021. And today, we're trying to understand what progress, if any, the Pentagon has made in following through on the recommendations for from that report on countering extremism in the ranks of the U.S. Armed Services. Now, um, Mr. Garrison, I'm looking at an inspector general's report uh, of the DOD from uh, late last year, and Mm -hmm. it says that the services took in 211 reports of domestic extremism between October 2021 and September of 2022. Uh, 183 investigations launched based on those reports. Um, But 211 reports is obviously a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket in comparison to the hundreds of thousands of members of the United States military. So is it a problem? Well, that's something that we wanted to ensure the department had an opportunity to actually determine. I I think uh, Chris Buckley, excuse me, hit the the nail on the head in the sense that we know the vast majority of those who serve do so honorably and they do so with great integrity. What we've seen is a small uh, group of actors that have a a very detrimental outsize impact to uh, the safety and well-being of their fellow service members as well to a unit cohesion and a good order and discipline of the unit. It, it erodes the ability for the United States military to meet its mission and to uh, be mission ready and mission capable 
when you have this type of activity uh, uh, potentially within your ranks. So we need to do everything we can to ensure that we have it as as few down to zero uh, as possible. And we need more data to understand exactly how large of a problem it actually is. Mm, I think you've described it previously as, you know, a, a tiny drop of poison that can that can uh, sully an entire, you know, uh, uh, bottle of water or, or ocean of water. In fact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. okay. So the question of gathering data, we're going to come back to that because there's there's quite a bit of uh, of controversy around that. But let me play something from um, the Secretary of Defense himself, Lloyd Austin. And by the way, we did put out a request to the Pentagon if uh, Secretary Austin could join us. Uh, he could not. But on February 5th of 2021, so this is before your working group issued um, its report, the secretary sent a memo to all commanding officers in the military um, to select a date within the next 60 days to conduct a one-day stand-down to discuss extremism in the ranks. It was one of his first actions as secretary of defense. Um, on March 29th of this year, Secretary Austin was asked in a hearing of the House Armed Services Committee how that stand-down went. And here's what Secretary Austin said. We not only focused on, on how to recognize extremist behavior and, and what, what the existing uh, policies were and, and that we had on the books that, that addressed this issue, but we also focused on the value of service and why we are serving and, uh, and the importance of, of sticking to our values. Because of that, you know, I've had numerous commanders tell me that you know, the ability to kind of talk to their units and interact with their units uh, in small group uh, and talk about some of these issues was very valuable. Now, once that two hours was over, again, they're on, they're on to the mission. This is not an effort to root out, uh, you know, any kind of uh, specific person. This is just to make sure that our units, our uh, living environments, you know, remain healthy and, and safe for people to work in. So, Bishop Garrison, it wasn't long after that stand down uh, that you were tapped to lead the Countering Extremist Activity Working Group. Um, yes. Do you feel that uh, the stand down was as useful or, and successful as the secretary says there? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the big thing that we saw from it, uh, one of the things Secretary Austin hit on there towards the end was the the small group conversations. What I like to to call at this point the awkward conversations. Those are opportunities uh, with um, fellow service members, with your uh, fellow unit members, to have discussions around these these difficult, sticky topics, and to to be real with one another, to learn and to grow together in, in an environment in which you you don't feel as though someone is going to attack you because of a, a particular uh, a misstep or, or poorly stated uh, belief. Uh, it's an opportunity to really learn and grow. And that was what the, the some of the best feedback we received on the 60-day stand-down was that it gave a lot of these units the opportunity to do exactly that on topics that were uh, taking place uh, in broader discussions within society at the time. Mm. So the fact that just a mere stand-down to discuss um um, have honest discussions about the potential problem of extremism in the military, that that took place um, very, very recently. Does that mean that little to no action had happened in the previous decades since the the military first identified that, you know, this was a problem? In, in the report, the December 2021 report that uh, that you helped issue, 
Um, it says since 1969, the DOD has provided guidance on prohibitive activities. And then after, um, you know, the 90s and again in the 2010s, the department built some kind of program to deter uh, uh, insider threats. But if if even just having a discussion in 2021 yielded fruit, what was happening in the decades before? Well, just like society changes and grows, so uh, does the United States military. And uh, there are no shortage of societal discourse and uh, they're going to have impacts back on on, uh, the Department of Defense and on the military broadly. So what we saw throughout these decades is a change. And as change persisted, uh, so did the the way that we need to uh, address our force and the way we need to go about um, engaging in our policy development. So that was really what you were seeing. So, uh, for instance, uh, one thing that we've seen uh, within the last, you know, 15 to 20 years was the rise of social media and how you're having uh, individuals that have a a broader um, platform to speak from now uh, on a variety of thoughts. And that is not something that was ever envisioned by policymakers back in the, uh, the late 60s and early 70s. So it's important for us to go back and look at our policy and ensure that we're properly addressing them and properly give, and giving out the proper guidance to the force so they know what the their the expectations of their uh, activities are. Mm. And uh, obviously social media was a big part of, or is a big part of the Teixeira case, so the urgency there is, is well understood. Now, you, and, and we'll talk about whether or not uh, the, the Pentagon has taken further action on that specifically in just a moment, but I want to note that in addition, Secretary Austin, um, again, in what, eight April of 2021, he actually did direct um, Pentagon leaders to take some specific actions about reviewing the definition of prohibited extremist activity, um, standardizing some um, questionnaires, I think, of these are either recruitment or or like onboarding questionnaires. There's a, a transition checklist for service members and commissioning an outside study on extremist activity in the total force. Um, have those, did those things come to pass? Yeah, so what you're uh, uh, laying out, uh, Magna, is the immediate actions that were a part of the uh, what we call the April 9th memo. And uh, those things were um, some of the uh, initial steps that we knew that we could uh, engage and take and address immediately uh, to have a, a at least a starting, uh, a beginning impact on, on some of this type of uh, prohibited activity. So uh, one of the first things, the major thing we did is listed in the immediate actions was the overhaul of uh, 1325.06. That's the uh, DOD instruction, the DOTI, that uh, defines what extremist activity is and what the prohibited activities under that are. And then as you uh, go through the document, you also see, uh, as you mentioned, the updated service member checklist, letting them know that, hey, there there is a chance there that you are going to be uh, potentially uh, engaged or targeted by some of these groups or individuals, because it's not always just a group. It could be individuals with these types of ideology that want to leverage your skill sets, your expertise, your experiences to engage in this type of uh, violent criminal behavior. 
and that is so you have the transition checklist and then you do have the sc- screening questions based off of uh, questions that had already existed within the military departments within the Marine Corps that looks for uh, s- a specific activity that uh, young recruits may have engaged in or, or may be engaging in uh, to get more information to understand exactly what it is these individuals are doing and why and why they want to be a part of the United States military. So it's a part of the adjudicative process, uh, the accessions processes are coming in. Mm. But, you know, I have to say, we had a very difficult time in getting specific information um, from the Pentagon about progress that they have or haven't made um, on the recommendations of both what Secretary Austin had uh, had implemented and the recommendations in your report, which we'll talk about more momentarily. You know, lots of emails, lots of phone calls. Um, We even sent them a detailed list of questions, which they didn't answer. And the most that the DOD sent back to us was a statement that said, the Countering Extremist Activity Working Group developed six recommendations and associated actions across four lines of effort, military justice and policy, support and oversight, uh, excuse me, oversight of the insider threat program, investigative processes and screening capability, and education and training. All recommendations have been assigned to the appropriate principal staff assistants within the department and, and are at various stages of development and implementation. How do you read that? So a, a part of the implementation plan for this was ensuring that this was an effort that did not lay outside of the chain of command, meaning that it would uh, be implemented within the normal course uh, of business. And a part of that is a decision to ensure that the department takes ownership of these types of, uh, of recommendations and this type of effort, and that they would see the uh, the necessity in it and they'd see the importance of it, and they would take it upon themselves to ensure that they were uh, they're the recommendations are properly enacted. So instead of having an, an outside group like the CEAWG, a working group to continue to uh, try to push us forward, you put it into the normal course of what the military departments are doing and what the fourth estate is engaging in. And in this case, we're talking about personnel and readiness and, uh, and intel and security. So uh, there is always going to need to be a phased approach to these types of issues because some of them may require resources, whether that that's additional human capital or that's uh, funding. Um, or, and some of them may just in, uh, need to take, you need more time to ensure that they're properly laid out, particularly when you talk about education and training, for instance. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I, I think the department could uh, benefit from a little bit more transparency, perhaps, and saying exactly uh, where they may be in the various stages at, at some of these points uh, of these issues. Uh, but I, I wholeheartedly believe that they're, they're taking it upon themselves and giving their best effort to ensure that they're um, uh, properly aligned with their the normal course of their work and that they're being implemented as such. Okay, so let me be more specific because, um, as we mentioned earlier, uh, data and actual information about the um, the extent or nature of the problem of extremism in the ranks is really important here because otherwise we don't want to misunderstand what's actually going on. And again, from mm-hmm. that April 9th memo, as, you, as we talked about, Secretary Austin wanted an outside study on extremist activity in the military. Now, we've heard that the study has been completed, but perhaps not released to the public. I mean, Bishop Garrison, have you seen it? I I have not. I actually left uh, the department for the private sector uh, prior to the completion uh, and any potential release of the study. So I've not been been made privy to it. Um, I I am 
uh, under the uh, under the belief, the assumption that it, it likely has been completed, given uh, a, a lot of the different uh, pieces of the effort were taking place back in uh, uh, the summer of 2022 or late spring, early summer of 2022. So I imagine that the, that study, that deep dive has likely been completed. But it is at the it's the of the purview of the leadership to determine whether or not uh, it's proper for a study like that, an internal uh, study that is uh, information for leadership to make uh, recommendations and decisions on to be released. So there's nothing that necessitates a release of that type of study. Um, but a- again, I think uh, the department could benefit from even the, you know just a little more transparency in the sense of how they're uh, addressing these issues and how they're going about uh, uh, getting this information and, and the analysis of what they're actually doing with it. Mm. Well, it makes one wonder if uh, there's some reluctance from the DOD because of how uh, recently this has become a very politicized issue about extremism in the ranks. Yeah, so to that point, um, in March of this year, Secretary Austin um, was uh, criticized by Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. This was at a a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing. Um, Senator Tuberville was uh, critical of that stand down that we talked about a little bit earlier. And here's that exchange. In one of your first acts, Mr. Secretary, you put our military, every single member, active duty and reserve through a mandatory training to root out extremists. That sent a message, Mr. Secretary, that our military is filled with extremists. Our military is one of the most diverse organizations in the world. It is full of patriots. Uh, first of all, uh, you said that, uh, you know, I, I had our troops focus on rooting out extremism and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, each of our units, troops, uh, spent uh, a couple of hours uh, talking about a number of things. Uh, we've always had uh, regulations against extremist behavior. Uh, and you've heard me say that 99.9% of our troops Uh, are focused on the right things each and every day. But in this case, a small uh, uh, set of actions can, uh, can have outsized impact. Again, that's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Senator Tommy Tuberville in March of this year. I want to bring in Heidi Byrick into the conversation. She's co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism and has testified before Congress on this very issue. Heidi, welcome. Oh, nice to be here. So the Senate Armed Services Committee has recently done some pretty interesting, uh, and you call them inexplicable things, including issuing a report uh, directed at halting efforts to counter violent extremism in the military. Can you explain that? Yeah, this past summer, uh, July of 2022, the Senate Armed Services Committee, a majority, all Republicans, plus Senator Angus King, an independent, issued a report stating that efforts at at rooting out extremists in the military need to stop because the process is, quote unquote, besmirching the troops. And the effect that this report had was that a series of provisions that had been inserted into the National Defense Authorization Act by House members to get a better handle on the situation with extremists in the military. In other words, most of these provisions were to get data. They were killed in the final um, 
NDAA. And as a result, efforts to get that kind of information were stopped, which has been a tragedy. Okay, so Heidi and um, Bishop, hang on for here for a moment, because now we're moving over to, to Congress to really understand what the roadblocks might be to understanding extremism in the military. And there's much more to discuss on that point. So we'll be back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a little heads up about something we're working on for next week. We're going to be talking about higher ed in Florida, including a recent law signed by Governor Ron DeSantis that forbids public colleges in Florida from offering general education classes that, quote, distort significant historical events or, quote, teach identity politics. So Florida professors What do you think about the new legislation? Will it change the way you teach? And college students, how will it change your classes, your experience at uh, Florida's public higher education institutions? What do you think? Let us know. You can share your experience by recording a message in the On Point Vox Pop app. Just look for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your apps. Or leave us a voicemail at 617-353-0683. That's for next week. Today, we are talking about understanding what efforts uh, have been taking place in in the military to combat extremism in the ranks and whether those efforts have stalled recently. I'm joined by Bishop Garrison. He's a fellow with the National Security Institute at George Mason Law School. And he head he headed a DOD working group back in 2021 on countering extremism. Heidi Byrick joins us as well. And she's co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism and has testified before Congress on this matter. Now, Heidi, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about the actions of the Senate Armed Services Committee, because um, as you've noted in in your own writings, they also uh, cited that 
Um, in fact, they cited uh, data from uh, from Bishop's own working group that one in every 21,000 service members, that, that minuscule drop we talked about earlier, uh, committed acts of extremism or prohibited um, violence. Uh, and so therefore, the number was so small that the, the Senate Armed Service, Services Committee did not feel that it, the, um, the time and the half million dollars dedicated to the efforts was worth it because they called it an inappropriate use of taxpayer funds. What do you think? What's your response to that? The problem here is that, I, I mean, I think that the working group was right, that this number is probably very small, although we we really don't know that. We don't have good data. But the outsized impact of folks who are veterans or active duty military who've been involved in terrorism is what the problem is here. I mean, we have cases, for example, of a neo-Nazi um, who was training with his fellow neo-Nazis to kill his own fellow service members on a base in Turkey. Everybody knows the example of Timothy McVeigh, who was a veteran and, of course, you know, conceived of and then carried out the Oklahoma City bombing. And the number of veterans and active duty military involved in domestic terrorism has been growing. So although this is probably a very small number in the armed forces, the impact that they can have on national security and on our lives, right, domestic terrorism is outsized. And I think the Teixeira case also, you know, shows us the result of the insider threat issue when it comes to someone who was involved in racism and who had a track record that probably should have been caught before. So that's the issue. It's the outsized impact of these individuals. Okay. So, um, Bishop, as Heidi had mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the Senate Armed Services Committee's actions led to the removal of several provisions pertaining to uh, extremism from the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, Heidi notes in, in her writing that only one survived, uh, and that was uh, a call to screen social media for uh, extremist ties. But that itself was only limited to foreign terrorist organizations and excluded screening for domestic uh, uh, extremism showing up on social media for members of the military. I mean, does this mean, B Bishop, that all efforts to gather data uh, about the problem of extremism in the military has, uh, has essentially stopped? Well, no. I, you're always going to have groups like uh, START and uh, ARLIS, those types of FFRDCs, uh, RAND, that, are, that look into the data of this uh, deeply with data scientists, with researchers. Uh, uh, CNAS, the Center for New American Security, has also done its own work around the, uh, this issue. The, the biggest problem is we do need the department, we need the United States government to look inwardly here. Um, uh, to the point that Senator uh, Tuberville was uh, attempting to make with the secretary, I, I think it's a bit short-sighted in the sense that no organization that looks to be successful can do so. They cannot grow without some sense of self-reflection. And that's what this type of effort is about. When we look inwardly and we look at this data, is to see well, what type of, of issue is this? What type of problem actually exists? And how can we create policies to uh, best affect it? If we don't do that, you're going to see more individuals, potentially like Teixeira, that have these types of, uh, of beliefs and are engaging in these types of activity uh, that somehow slip through the cracks and and unfortunately lead to things like uh, security leaks. Mm. But more specifically, in, um, again, the 
the Countering Extremist Activity Working Group report from December of 2021. We mm-hmm. sort of we touched upon this earlier, but now I need to be uh, more specific. Uh, that there were additional recommendations that you and the group made, including developing comprehensive training and education plans uh, on prohibitive extreme prohibited extremist activity reviewing and updating policies um, to provide notice to the total force and defense contractors, I should say, on prohibited activities um, and modernizing the insider threat program. I mean, has there been progress made on those new recommendations that were in the December 2021 report? To some degree that I know of, yes. Uh, And again, some of this is particularly when you start talking about the insider threat program, you begin to talk about uh, some sensitive uh, uh, information, if not in some cases classified, that the department is not going to to release or discuss. Uh, But in some instances, yes, there has been uh, uh, some progress made, just as uh, the department says there has been uh, towards us. When you talk about uh, contractors and civilians, there are already uh, longstanding policies as they related to security clearances, for instance, that govern the activities of uh, these individuals, but making an effort to actually call out the existence of those policies and ensuring that uh, the industry and individuals were aware of what is and is not prohibited was a, a step that uh, the department was making. I think it was a step in the right direction. Uh, when you talk about the investment of resources into the insider threat program, whether that be uh, the DITMAC, the uh, Defense Insider Threat uh, Management and Analysis uh, Center, or you're talking about some of its its other, the uh, the BTAC or you know, the PAR, some of these other uh, uh, acronyms uh, that align with those efforts. Uh, it was about ensuring that they had the proper oversight and the proper uh, resources to, to do their job. And I know that the department was uh, definitely investing and in moving in that direction and giving it in, uh, oversight from the highest levels of the of the department. Mm. Heidi, I'm, I mean, I hear uh, Bishop clearly on uh, what he knows in terms of how seriously Pentagon leadership takes this. But would you agree or disagree about the consistency of the efforts in the past couple of years? Well, I think, unfortunately, as this issue has become politicized, we're hearing less and less from the DOD. So I think Bishop's point about transparency is really important because from those of us outside of the Department of Defense, it looks as though there were quite a bit of efforts uh, in 2021, in particular, the working groups um, uh, issued report and then sort of a stalling out. And I just want to point out that we like to think that this is a very small problem, but several polls by the Military Times have shown around 30 to 40 percent of active duty service members have seen evidence of white nationalists activity and racism. So we really need to get a handle on these numbers. How is it possible that that polling data is so much different than estimates of extremists inside? Um, So I'm I'm just making a call for data because we have to have data-driven analysis to solve this problem and for transparency so that we can see better what the DOD is doing to address these issues. But Heidi, it seems as if you're saying that the ability to gather that data has been made more challenging by the views of key members of the Senate Armed Services Committee. There's no question. And this idea that getting good data on extremism in the military is somehow besmirching the troops 
is completely absurd, or that discussing this issue is somehow um, us saying that folks in the military are not patriots. You know, the military has to deal with, as a large institution, a diverse institution with all kinds of issues, uh, sexual harassment issues, drug and alcohol abuse issues, gang issues, et cetera, et cetera. And none of those issues, when they're taken up, are supposedly besmirching the troops. So I'm not exactly sure why it is that Republicans have decided to take this line of argument when it comes to looking at things like neo-Nazis in the ranks or white nationalists. This is a serious threat. These people have contributed to domestic terrorism. We have to address it, and we need more transparency, and we need to look at this hard-headed, not through some kind of politicized lens that by addressing the topic is somehow just, you know, being terrible to the troops. It's not. Mm. Well, here again is Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama. He's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Earlier this month, he was interviewed by local Alabama radio station WBHM. Uh, And during that interview, he once again criticized the military's efforts to counter extremism. And here's what he said. We are losing in the military so fast our readiness in terms of recruitment. And why? I can tell you why. Because the Democrats are attacking our military, saying we need to get out the white extremists, the white nationalists, people that don't don't believe in, in our agenda as as uh, Joe Biden's agenda. Uh, they're destroying it. Uh, this year, we will not reach any recruiting goals in the military. So if we want to talk about looking weak, that's where we're going to look weak. You mentioned the Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. Now, after this interview, Tuberville's office uh, released a statement saying that uh, what the senator was saying was he was skeptical of the notion that there are white nationalists in the military, not that he believes they should be in the military. He said later in a different interview, quote, I look at a white nationalist as a Trump Republican. That's what we're called all the time, a MAGA person. And then he went on to say, I agree that we should not be characterizing Trump supporters as white nationalists. So um, a little bit of confusing spin there. But Heidi, how do you read this moment? Well, I mean, the senator obviously is very, very confused. We certainly do not want people who believe in white supremacy to be in the military and to be become skilled at bomb making and running guns and then come out of the military and possibly commit domestic terrorist acts. I mean, I find this, the senator's statements ridiculous. And this is what I'm talking about, about the politicization. This is not something that needs to be politicized. We need to keep people who have neo-Nazi views and other extremist views out of the ranks of the military to protect our own troops and to protect the public and to protect our national security. And, you know, I really think the senator needs to take some time to think about what it is he's been saying. Mm. Bishop, who gets hurt if uh, we don't do what it what it takes to um, get this data and understand the truth of um, uh, extremism in the military, whatever shape, form or size it may be? Uh, to be quite frank, there's no telling. Uh, it, it really depends on how that one individual or that small group of individuals uh, act. Uh, and 
and we had an opportunity to uh, to prevent that activity or prevent that action. So, uh, th- and that takes a variety of forms. Uh, we're talking about the again the uh, erosion of uh, uh, unit cohesion and the military's ability to properly carry out its position. So you're talking about national security being hurt broadly. Uh, it could be in the form of a violent attack in which people are are injured or or worse. And, uh, and we're not just talking about service members. We're talking about civilians. We're talking about potentially military families if you're talking about something that takes uh, place on a base. So there's so many factors into this that it it really goes beyond belief that we wouldn't want to do everything we could to get the proper data to understand how large of a potential issue it is. Because again, it has such an outsized impact, even when you have uh, a small group of individuals uh, acting uh, on some type of uh, closely held beliefs like this. Well, so, so to put it more specifically, Heidi, you know, when Bishop says that uh, it can affect readiness, does that mean that the military itself gets hurt if we don't get to the bottom of this? I don't think there's any question. I mean, Bishop put it well. This is something, you know, this is a huge diverse force. If you have extremists there, it's going to hurt unit readiness. It could lead to violence against troops. There have been plots like that already. And it could put the public in danger. So this is why the analogy of a drop of poison ruining a glass of water matters. It may be a small problem, but its impact is so massively outsized that it has to be dealt with. And it would be great to have more transparency from the DOD for for what they've done so far so that the rest of us can feel good about what's happening there. Mm. And it'd be really nice if Republicans would stop politicizing this issue. So I've got another question um, as we wrap up here. You know, Bishop, I'm I'm thinking about uh, changes that came, and they're not complete yet by any stretch of the imagination, regarding sexual assault in the military, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the This vast institution, sometimes slow moving, finally got its act together to a certain degree. But it took you know, um, the problem to reach a to reach a proportion that it should have never it should have never reached. Do you worry that something similar might happen with combating extremism in the military, that there's this window of opportunity right now while the numbers are still small to do something? But perhaps, uh, I don't know, Congress and even the Pentagon itself might wait too long until the problem gets bigger. I mean, I, we honestly just can't say without fully understanding or knowing the problem. And the way you get to that is the data. I, yes, it's absolutely possible, uh, given the, again, the outsized impact and the importance of dealing with this type of issue, that the longer we wait and the, the longer we don't understand what we're dealing with, fully at least, uh, the more potential we have uh, or we're creating for some type of, of heinous act to take place or some type of major issue to to happen. Well, Bishop Garrison, fellow with the National Security Institute at George Mason Law School and also leader of the DOD's Countering Extremist Activity Working Group back in 2021. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. And by the way, that Pentagon Working Group's report, which was issued in December of 2021, uh, we have a link to that at onpointradio.org. And Heidi Byrick, co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. Heidi, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.